What did happen to the Ark of the Covenant? That is a good, a good question. I have an answer. Yeah, go ahead. It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> when I was younger, I didn't have much catechesis. It was, it was pretty watered down. Well, now I think sometimes the other extreme is what people want to do. We need to teach them the faith and debt and, you know. Hammer it and, in. Yeah, you know, the truth is like a scalpel. You know, in the hands of a surgeon, it can save lives. In the hands of somebody else, it can really, it can really cut them up. <laughs> How do you mark your bio? Let's see. All right, we'll show them. There. What? Oh, sorry, let me get to another page that has stuff on it. Cut. <laughs> A big thank you to today's episode sponsor, Christ Medicus Foundation Curo. CMF Curo is an affordable Catholic health and wellness alternative offering a health sharing option, wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic health community rooted in Christ's love. Hello, I'm Jeff Cavins. Welcome to the Bible Timeline Show. This show, we're going to talk about that beautiful yellow period on the Bible timeline chart. It's called the return. What happens in this period is really, well, I guess you could say it's a recipe for restoration. And I think in all of our lives, one time or another, we need that. We need to know how to rebuild. It's like, it's like the rise of the phoenix, you know. But in the midst of the entire story, there is a story of a woman by the name of Esther. And she plays a prominent role at this time. Most people think about Ezra. Most people think about Zerubbabel or Nehemiah. But here is a beautiful woman of God, and God uses her uh, for his purposes, and it really means the life of the people. So we're going to take a look take a look at that. It's good to have you. Hey, thank you, Jeff. It's an honor to be here. Dude. Well, we're looking at this period of, uh, for people who have the Bible timeline chart, the yellow period, the return. This yeah. is a, a major period in salvation history where Judah, who's been up in captivity now for 70 years, they're making their way back. Ezra, Nehemiah are the narrative books. We have Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are the, mm -hmm. the prophets during this, this period. And, you know, as we look at the period, just I want to start off with a broad picture of the return, yeah. the period of the return. And then I want to look at one lady by the name of, of, uh, of Esther. But help us understand a little bit more of basically this return and what it might mean for our lives. You know, I think in all of our lives, we've had these experiences where everything seems lost and God brings us back. Mm -hmm. But what's beautiful about this period in salvation history, and I think it reflects our lives as well, is that it's not just about a rebooting. It's yeah. not just about a, okay, well, you know, that, that, that exile experience was just garbage just forget about it, okay? Let's just start over, we'll rebuild. It, there's key things that occurred during that exile, um, during our own personal exiles, that mm -hmm. the Lord actually still uses and, and builds us up with. And I, and I think we see that in the bigger context of salvation history. You know, one of the important things that happened during the exile, so the temple is destroyed, and I, and I don't think we could grasp what a big deal for a Jewish person, the temple being destroyed. I mean, maybe if St. Peter's blew up, it would be similar, but not even. Maybe, maybe a better thing would be to say, if St. Peter's blew up and it had the only Eucharistic tabernacle in it, hmm. and there were no priests to consecrate the Eucharist, because yeah. in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, you know, which had uh, you know, the remnants of 
the Ten Commandments, it had uh, Aaron's staff, and it had a third thing, which you're about to say. Manna. Exactly, the, the, original, the original manna. And um, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem, the ark disappeared and wasn't discovered again until 1940 by Dr. Indiana Jones. Yes, I've, I saw that movie. Great, there was a documentary. Great documentary. Yeah, really great documentary. So even for the Jews coming back under Zerubbabel, or how do you pronounce it? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. I, as just an aside, I don't know why ki- more people don't name their kids Zerubbabel. I do. What, you do? Yeah, it's very difficult. You think so? Yeah. But like little bubby? <laughs> be cute. So they rebuild the temple, and that's awesome, but something's missing, mm-hmm. and it's the Ark of the Covenant. And so there's a sense of where is God? This is where God used to be. Yeah. But he's not here. And that was, a, that was a bit of a dilemma for the Jew at the time. Like, mm-hmm. we're really glad to have the temple back. We're having the sacrifices back. But it's almost like there's an empty tabernacle in the church. Right. Like, we know something significant is, is missing here. Mm-hmm. So what did the Jewish people do when the temple was gone? They used to be all, all about the temple. Well, they start reading the Word. Mm-hmm. Um, the rabbi becomes prominent in Jewish society. It's no longer dependent on what's happening in Jerusalem. It's now about... Um, it's about the synagogue, and it's about the rabbi, and it's about the people themselves experiencing the word for themselves and learning more about that. All of that sets the stage for Jesus. Mm-hmm. When Jesus comes into his temple, God is back. And what's the, temp- what's the title most used for Jesus? Rabbi. Yeah. And who is he? He is the living word of God. And so the experiences that the Jews went through during the time of exile, difficult though it was, God used all of those things to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And, and analogously, I think that's true in our own lives. I think we can see times of difficulty and even despair. You know, I think of your own story. Yes, you left the church, but look at what you learned while you were gone, the love of scripture, the passionate, so that when you came back, it wasn't just a reboot or a restart. God used all of those elements of that difficult time to be a blessing to so many people. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can look at our own lives, you know, even the more difficult things and say, but look at the blessings. Well, let's turn our attention to Esther. Okay. Because this this is a book that does not get mentioned a lot. You don't see a lot of Bible studies on Esther. You you don't hear a lot of homilies on Esther and that type of thing. It's it's not much in the lectionary. I think that's right. that's part of it. You yeah. know, um, that is very rarely mentioned uh, in our normal lectionary mm-hmm. cycle. Someone were to come up to you, uh, Dr. Rice, and say, "Tell me this Esther. I'm a little bit confused. What would you what would you say to him?" Just to summarize the story. Yeah. yeah. So Esther is the story of a beautiful Jewish woman. Uh, this is when the Persians are in control. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, this, it's almost a kind of novella in, in, its, in its structure where um, there is a plan from the sidekick of the king, uh, Haman. If I'm, you can pronounce mm-hmm. it better than me. I learned, I learned everything in England, so all my accent's a little bit off. Who uh, wants to eradicate the Jewish people. And Mordecai finds out about this, and so he encourages Esther, uh, who is one of the queens at the time, to go plead for her people. So uh, now it is death to appear before the king and just show up. You only can come when, when called. Mm-hmm. So she's walking to her death to try to advocate for her own people. And in fact, she gets in front of him 
and she faints. <laughs> She's so terrified of this. But the king wakes her up and says, no, 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 it's okay, I'll let you talk to me, which was great, and uh, serves a banquet uh, for the king, and in the midst of that does a fun little turnaround on Hammond, uh, who ends up, you know, getting exposed for trying to kill Esther and her people. They didn't realize that she was Jewish. She was kind of an undercover Jew, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And from then on, uh, Haman receives the fate that the Jews are going to have, which he's killed. Uh, Mordecai gets elevated, and the Jewish people are spared. It's a wonderful story. Yeah. So in the, in the story, you have, you have Esther, who plays this significant, significant role. What do you think that her role means to women? these days? What can we take from that story? Is there anything about her that, like her natural gift of beauty right. and so forth, that the Lord used you know, to, to uh, make sure that his purposes were played out? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, John Paul II, uh, St. John Paul II uh, wrote a beautiful reflection on the role of women in salvation history. And he compares Esther also with another woman that we see at that time, Judith. Sure. Uh, and that book of Judith is, uh, you know, right near Esther in the Bible. Another strong and beautiful woman, a little bit of a different story. Mm -hmm. uh, she, you know, when the people want to, you know, surrender themselves, she goes and she uh, pretends to get drunk with the general of the opposing army, and when he falls asleep, cuts his head off, uh, takes his head back, puts it on a stick. The Israelites rejoice, they run away. And you might think, well, that's, that's really gory. Um, but you have examples of two women, beautiful women, using different gifts and strengths, and both of them are seen as a type of our Blessed Mother. They're both in an intercessory role. Now with Judith, you think, I don't think our Blessed Mother would cut the head off a general, but she does, cut the head off the snake, right? Like yep. she is, you know, that that is her role, you know, in terms of uh, bringing in the, the one who would end up killing the snake. In Esther's case, she's a queen, obviously Mary, queen of heaven, beautiful. And, and her role again is that intercessory. She comes before the throne pleading for her own people, you know, I mean, she's just, such a gift that we have our Blessed Mother in our faith mm -hmm. and, and her role of intercession. And so many of the early church fathers reflected on that role of Esther and the prayers of Esther. In fact, um, the things that do remain in the lectionary are in fact her prayers, uh, her prayers of intercession and um, just full surrender and trust uh, in a God who delivers his people. So often in the story of salvation history, we see the unlikely person uh, who who steps up and God uses them in a, right. in a powerful way, you know you have unlikely and unwilling. Yeah, <laughs> in, in in Gideon, case. for example. Right, right. Gideon, he's even arguing that I'm I'm the least of my family and our family's the least the least tribe and yeah. and so forth. I'm not the guy, you know. Or Moses, you know, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. That, that or David, the young boy, the shepherd boy back mm. in back in Bethlehem. But God uses the people that that nobody thinks is going to be used, but he uses them in such a, a, a beautiful way. Right. Now, her cousin Mordecai, what role does, does he play in the, in the story as far as bringing her to prominence? He's an encourager for her, obviously. I mean, you know, Mordecai ends up being the guy that knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, particularly in somebody that sets her up for success and uh, really is, is the one that um, I think gives her strength and gives her um, 
gosh, formation maybe for lack sure. of even uh, even a better word, uh, regarding his role and his role in uh, his role in the government, his ability to get things done. Do you see a correlation between uh, Esther and the common person out there that doesn't feel that maybe God would use them? Absolutely, and I think it really shows, uh, you know, the, the whole story is such a quote-unquote unlikely story of mm -hmm. people who weren't looking to do anything and end up really becoming the, the people through which God saves his people. And it's about faithfulness. Uh, it's about prayer. Again, the prayers of Mordecai are another thing that show up uh, in our lectionary. Yeah. That it's a, it's just a total abandonment to the Lord and being able to um, just do what needs to be done in the small ways, in the big ways, that God can really use anybody in any situation yeah. if we're willing to say yes and if we're willing to stand up. I think that really is something so essential about particularly Mordecai, but also Esther. I think all of us see that there are injustices. There's things that could be done, but mm -hmm. it's easy to say, it's not me, it's not my role. And a proper discernment of that shouldn't be based on because who am I? Well, as you mentioned, like, that's the first excuse of everybody in the Bible. Well, who am I to do that? Yes, not, and, my, I'm, I'm not my gift. Yeah, right. And the Lord says, I'm the giver of gifts. I love when Moses said to God, I, I don't even speak well. He has a stutter, you know, right. is what we think. And God just says, who gives a man a mouth, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, look, trust me, like I can, I can do this through you. And it is about faith. It is about surrender. And... It's about not thinking because you're in a certain position, uh, state in life, age, place, whatever it is. Any excuse that you could throw at God as to why you can't be a part of his plan of salvation, mm -hmm. all you have to do is look at scripture and look at the saints in church history. Yeah. And there's many examples to the contrary that actually more people than you think were exactly in your situation and through the Holy Spirit was able to do great and incredible things because they were willing to say yes to God. Well, I think that if people were trying to figure out the solution to their problem in captivity and they lined everybody up and said, one of these people is going to be key. And we want you to guess which one. You've got their, their uh, curriculum vitae. You've got their background. <laughs> you can yes. read them all. You tell me who, who God's going to use in this situation. I don't think she would have been chosen. No. They would have said, uh, the pretty lady over there, you know. Who faints. Who faints. <laughs> right. right. Who's she's, scared to death. She's yeah, the one. She's going she's gonna to do it. But God does use the unlikely. Right. And part of the return uh, from exile is this theme of God uses the unlikely. Well, even the king of Persia, you know, Cyrus being mm -hmm. the guy that brings people back to Jerusalem. I mean, here's, yeah. a, here's a pagan. Here's somebody that really has nothing, you know, to do, quote unquote, yeah. with salvation history. Um, but God uses even, even somebody who doesn't have the faith in a powerful and profound way to allow them to come back and to, to be a part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. I'd also add, I think, Jeff, uh, an important part for maybe a, a modern analogy of what I think we can learn from this time period. You look at some of these figures like Esther or mm -hmm. like Judith or like Tobias. You know, we, we see these stories in the exile. And these aren't um, people in the lineage. You know, these aren't kings. These aren't mm -hmm. anointed prophets, right? You know, these are, they're kind of just stories of, of regular folk, who are doing God's will in extraordinary ways because they're, they're saying yes to him. Right. 
and I think what the church needs now is, is more of that. We need more of the laity to really be rising up. And, and I would hope that in at least the history of our church, I feel like in some ways the Catholic Church is coming back from the exile. You know, we've gone through these horrible sexual scandals. And, you know, before the sexual scandals, right, it was similar to the Jewish peoples. Like, it was the priest, it was the temple. And now, in the scandal of that, um, there are many people that see a priest and they, they don't want to hear it from a priest. You know, they just don't trust that. I mean, we who are Catholic, of course, revere that still. Mm-hmm. But in a culture and a society, uh, it's going to be more of lay people rising up, sharing their faith in their office, uh, talking about it with maybe estranged family members, doing more in the life of the church, you know, that that they would the church would feel more of a community where everybody is active, that you would feel like, I have an idea for ministry. Maybe I can go talk to my pastor about this, you know, and, mm-hmm. and not have that attitude of, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not clergy. You know, even me being a deacon is like, well, I'm clergy now. But um, how might we as a church just return, uh, return to a sense where we are all being nourished by God's word together, mm-hmm. that we are living the faith, that we're witnessing the faith. And even the businessman, the, whatever your gifts are, if we give them to the Lord, that God is going to use all of those things to restore and lead the way for a deeper proclamation of Jesus Christ. That leads me to, uh, to ask the question, Esther, uh, she didn't have uh, like a Miss America sash that said Jew <laughs> right. on it, you know? Yeah. She, in fact, she sort of hid it. Yes. And and there was a certain prudence there. In, in order for her to get the job done, she wasn't leading with the title first, that I'm I'm a Jew, Jewish woman, or today we say, I'm a Catholic. Yes. You know, and talk to me a little bit about prudence. Prudence, of course, is, you know, getting, you know, looking to where you want to end up, freedom, and making right decisions to get there. Is there a time where the, the right decision is not to make such a big deal out of who you are spiritually, but uh, to simply be who you are without, without the title? I think so. And, and I think many times um, we can miss that subtlety of it. We, in many ways, I think we've heard the, you know, like, for example, uh, I, I shared earlier that when I was younger, I didn't have much catechesis. It was, it was pretty watered down. Well, now I think sometimes the other extreme is what people want to do. We need to teach them the faith and, debt and you know. Hammer it and, in. Yeah, you know, the truth is like a scalpel. You know, in the hands of a surgeon, it can save lives. In the hands of somebody else, it can really... It can really cut them up. And, you know, St. Paul talked about can we find ways to speak the truth in love? Mm-hmm. Is there a gradual way in which we can reveal God's love? Because when you look at scriptures, the Lord spoke to us slow and in stages and brought us more deeply. Can we be more sensitive to where people are in their spiritual journey and, and how we reveal that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we see in the life of Esther, which was to say that, yes, she was in a time where if, you know, if she was outed, so to speak, as, as being Jewish, she wouldn't have been able to do the ministry that she ended up doing. You know, Jesus says that we need to be, mm-hmm. you know, cunning as snakes but innocent as doves. We never hear in Esther any sense of a lack of integrity on her no. part. You know, but she was, um, you know, she was accepting the society and the role that she was in society, and yet when push came to shove, 
that's when she stepped forward. Yeah. And I think in a similar way that we can find ourselves in different places of work, in different places of the country, in different situations. And it's not bad that we're there in that sense. Uh, we are called to be in the world, especially, you know, I, again, the lay vocation is to be the salt of the earth. How are you salt of the earth unless you're spread out, mm-hmm. you know, in the earth? But there's going to be moments where, and this is through discernment and prudence, where we have to say, is this where the Lord is calling me to, to stand up? Is this, is this something at work that just isn't right, yeah. you know, that I, that I can't tolerate anymore? You know, that what would the Lord do in this situation? Where is he inviting me in, yeah. into these places? And, and that's not easy. And, and I think the default shouldn't be fight. I, you know, I think sometimes our culture, like, especially as men, I, you know, I think a lot of times we're, you know, I do, I do many men's conferences and, um, there can kind of be a rah-rah, you know, of like, just get out there and yeah. Beef jerky. Yeah, yeah. And I'm all for that because I think you're right. I think many times as men in our society, we do become emasculated, so to speak, in, in mm-hmm. some of the ways of the culture and of the world. But then that doesn't mean that means, you know, we can't just be reacting to the opposite of. You, we really have to be seeking the Lord and seeking the Lord's guidance and prudence mm-hmm. in, in all of those decisions, you know, that we're not burning bridges but we're really a witness to love. I think if people see in us a genuine joy, a genuine love, well, it's what St. Peter says. He says, proclaim the Lord holy in your hearts and always be ready to give reason for the hope that you have received, yeah. which is to say that if we're living our faith in a joyful, profound, and beautiful way, I don't need to tell people I'm Catholic. I'm living being a joyful missionary mm-hmm. disciple. Yeah. And then they ask me, where are you getting that joy from? And now I can tell them about how Jesus Christ has changed my life. Mm-hmm. If we lead with our witness, you know, that's always gonna be more effective than if we lead with a title or a message that might turn people off. But if as salt of the earth, if as that leaven, uh, we can go out there and, and live among, it was because Esther was living among faithfully that she was able to then step forward and say, no, this is my people, this is my faith, this is, who I am. And the king already knew her to be beautiful and to be kind, you know, like all the, all the positive characteristics. If, if she led with, I'm Jewish and I want to protect my people, well, there's your agenda. Right? Exactly. There's, it was like, it was there's like, your angle. Oh, well, I'm not going to listen to you because obviously you want to save your I, people. Yeah, they assume right? they know what you're going to think and say and, yeah. and the conclusions you're going to come to. It's like sitting on an airplane, you know, and somebody, they, they see me with a Bible or whatever, and they go, oh, yeah, it's the Bible. I see you're reading the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I read the Bible. Uh, do you enjoy reading the Bible? Yeah, I say, I do. And they'll, so I'll say, well, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I'm a, I'm a writer, a speaker. And I'll just come out and say, I'm Catholic. I believe in transubstantiation. <laughs> yes, I believe exactly. in purgatory. I pray to the saints and ask them for intercession. Yeah. You probably know what I do now, huh? Right. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't put that Let's out. Let's talk there. about contraception. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. and women being priests. Okay, why don't we start there? But I, I, I tell them I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. Oh, what do you write about? Well, I write about getting, getting your life together. And uh, um, I write about the fact that uh, God has a plan for your life and... And, um, and uh, he wants you to be a part of it. God loves you, has a plan for your life. And, and uh, I do a lot of work with uh, the Bible. And I just don't give away everything right at the, yes. at, the, at, the, at the beginning of it. I also think about, you know, remember in World War II. In World War II, you have uh, all of these Christians in the Netherlands and uh, other places where they were hiding, these Christians were hiding Jews. Mm-hmm. And... 
had they just put out on the front of their home, I'm a Christian who believes that Jews should not be taken to concentration camps. That would have proved nothing at all. And so they had to play down their faith for the sake of saving lives. Yes. And I think that that's, an, that's a good example of the type of prudence that Esther had, and that is that uh, because of the task asked of me right now, my label is not that important. What I do is important. Yes. Uh, my actions are important. Maybe they'll read about it later. I don't know. But it's, 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 uh, it's prudent for me to simply be quiet, do the right thing, and get the job done. And I think that that's true in, at work for many people, too, is that there's a time for everything. You know, as the scriptures say, as apples of gold in a setting of silver, so are the right words in the right circumstance. You've got to know your right circumstances. Yes. You have to know when it's time to say something, when it's time to be quiet about, about something else. And Esther, she does it. Yes. It's it's incredible. Yeah, and the Lord leads you that way. And I would say mm -hmm. maybe even for a listener who's saying, well, then how do I know when the time is, right? Yeah. I, I think humility is a key part of that, that it wouldn't be out of our own pride, you know, that we would make the statement and that, that we would really just let the Holy Spirit provide the right circumstance. You know, God, I think of this whenever I'm even ministering with a family member or somebody, a stranger, mm -hmm. God cares more about this person than I do. Yeah. You know, like the, I need to be able to trust in the love and providence. I'm not trying to manipulate something or force something to happen. I really just want to be docile to the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to be, I have integrity of who I am and how I love. I, I want to be eager to share my witness first before I get into titles. And it's even trickier being ordained just a year and a half, you know, I'm deacon, but oh, end of conversation, right? You know, so I'll just, I'll, I am Bob, you know, yeah. and, and I just want to have those places of connect and contact, which isn't, I'm ashamed of the caller. I'm ashamed. No, I'm just, just, you must to, be used to, to at to this ministry. point. Uh, hello, Father. Yes. Oh, at the end of every Mass, I just start saying, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Right, you know, <laughs> Airports, but, hello, Father. Yeah. Well, I, try, I usually don't wear the clerics out. Unless I'm doing specific specific diaconal ministry, sure, like right now, because yeah. the ministry of the word is a diaconal ministry. I appreciate all that. When we're going to take a break, when we come back, I want to get to know a little bit about you and Bible study. How do you go about studying your Bible? And if we can, maybe even take a peek into your Bible, because these are the things that people want to know. How do people like you? How do people like me? How do we engage in sacred scripture? Sound good? Sounds great. CMF Curo is a Catholic health and wellness alternative for individuals and families that offers what modern healthcare is missing. Curo offers an affordable and faithful Catholic alternative to the impersonal experience so many people confront when they need healthcare. Curo is fueled by the belief that each person is an unrepeatable gift from God. This belief informs its whole-person holistic approach to its health and wellness program. Curo provides personalized wellness coaching, spiritual direction, small group studies, Catholic community, and a Christ-centered healthcare sharing option. As you consider your healthcare needs this year, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining and learning more at cmfcuro.org. That's cmfcuro.org. Okay, so we come to the, the part of the show that everybody wants to know. How does Dr. Deacon Bob Rice 
interact with his Bible, how do you go about Bible study? I open the page. And I read it. Is there something more to that? We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> no, you, you know, you're a deacon. You, you preach. Yes, yes. You teach. You have uh, devotions. Do you read the Bible with your children, with your mm -hmm. wife? Uh, is that your main Bible? This is my main Bible. This is absolutely what my main Bible. What did you get? Bible. How long have you had that? Ah, gosh. Well, unlike you, I didn't realize you could rebind Bibles. So, Bible. um, goodness, how long have I had this one? Maybe a decade. <laughs> But I think I'm on my third or fourth in my life in Bibles? terms of, yeah. Tell me, what's your favorite verse? Do you have a favorite verse? I do. Uh, it's almost cliche, but it's the verse that changed my life was John 10, chapter 10. And it's the story of the Good Shepherd. Mm. And it, Jesus said that I, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Mm. I heard that as a freshman in high school. And I liked Jesus. I would say I was very pro-Jesus. You know, I, I liked the church. I didn't, I, you know, some people are like, oh, I don't want to go. I kind of thought it was interesting. And, and I certainly didn't want God to be mad at me. But my stereotype of holiness, my stereotype, if I was really serious about Jesus, wasn't a full life. It was kind of life to the half. There's things you might want to do, but you not really do them. And so this idea, this contrast of the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Mm -hmm. But I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. Yeah. The Lord just used that word as a real, like it was just like a shock on the heart, like, what did you say? You know, because I wanted abundant life. And in, in, in that period of time in my life, I was not feeling an abundant life. Mm -hmm. You know, I was feeling like I was being pulled in a lot of different directions. I was young. I was, what's my identity? Who am I? What's my purpose? And that invitation in that scripture um, was there a point where you went over the edge? I'm kind of a point where you're like, I'm making a decision. I'm giving my life to God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it was actually the summer after my freshman year of high school. It was. And that was something I was very grateful, again, hanging out with some Protestants because they, um, they encouraged me to make that decision without... Um, betraying my baptism, you know, like, you know, it wasn't like, uh, yeah. sometimes you see the stereotypes They just of wanted it. you to make a decision. They just asked me, have you ever, and I was like, I think so. And they're like, well, if you say you think so, you haven't. And, you haven't. Yeah. and I really had to contemplate that. Like, well, I've, I've been going on default, I guess. I mean, yeah. why am I Catholic? Well, my parents are Catholic and my grandparents are Catholic. The sacrament and of osmosis. I, I, I like being Catholic, but will you be? You know, it, mm -hmm. I think it's what Jesus asked the apostles. So what do other people say? Well, what do you yeah. say? And I think in all of our lives, I think that's that moment of encounter mm -hmm. that we have to make a decision, a, a commitment in our heart that we're going to say, I'm in. All, all the characters in the Bible, who are you? Who do you, who would, who do you most identify with in the Bible? Um, I would say it would be, um, my mind's blanking. Don't say Jesus. I won't say Jesus. No, the son of encouragement. Oh, uh, yeah, there you are. Yeah, Barnabas. Barnabas. There's something about just that line, son of encouragement. You know, I've always felt more of a sidekick than a leading actor. Like, really? I, yeah, like, like Robin, Riker, you know, like Radar. Chewy. Uh, you Radar like, O'Reilly. Yeah, thanks for hitting that generation out there. Um, I'm trying, like Costello, Lawrence I don't know. Wilk. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't think he was, the, I don't think Elvis was the sidekick. No. 
It I've always, was when Ann Margaret was with them. Yeah, but I've always felt that joy of actually being part of a team of helping make things happen. Mm-hmm. And there was just something about reading the Book of Acts and this story of this man whose nickname became the Son of Encouragement. He just he was the guy that people wanted to be with. He was the one that actually was bold enough to find Paul and and mm-hmm. you know advocate for Paul in, in front of the others. And so. Um, I don't know, there's just something about him every time his feast day comes up, every time yeah, I read well, about him, good. there's like a little spark. You're the first Barnabas we've had. Is that right? Yeah. Now, you are a creative guy, somewhat funny. Thank and, you. And you've got books, you've got, you got, you got CDs, you are, you are very, very musical, mm-hmm. very good singer. Thank you. A very good writer. You are creative. You, I can only imagine the markers and the pencils and the colors that you use in your Bible. I'd like to see that. What, how do you mark your Bible? How do you mark your Bible? Let's see. All right, we'll show them. There. What? Oh, sorry. Let me get to another page that has stuff on it. Cut. It, can we? Can we just? Can I? Use, I would say my. Use this one. Let's do it again. And right. Use this. I, one. I would say you know my first Bible. Um, actually was marked up quite a bit. Really? And um, what was also beautiful is like a lot of the people that I was in youth ministry with would you sign it. I cannot believe that. There's not one mark in that. And and it's intentional. So uh, one of the things I found, right, be gentle with it. It's a little bit of an older thing. cash anything in here? <laughs> memories? Cards? Well, lots of memories. What I found actually is I, I went through a Bible and everything was highlighted in different colors and notes and it was crazy and it was wonderful. And sometimes I actually go back and I look at that as kind of a, a prayerful meditation. Yeah. But what I also found was for me personally, after having read the scriptures numerous times, is that I would actually start reading those sections and instead of feeling like I'm allowing the Lord to say something new to me, I would be caught a little bit into what he said to me earlier. And so what I do now is I have a journal next to my Bible. And when the Lord inspires me, I'll write a journal notation about the verse and what the Lord is saying. But I try to keep the pages blank because the next time I come upon that scripture, I want to be able to come at it fresh. I want to be able to say, Lord, what do you want to say to me in a new way with the scripture? Because that is the beautiful thing of the living word of God. You know, every mm-hmm. time it's always new. He's always speaking to you in a powerful and new way. And so, even my even verses like you know my favorite verse, John ten ten. I want to get to that, and I don't want to go. Oh, I know this story, or I know this scripture. And I think that's a challenge uh, as Catholics when we hear a gospel read and it begins, and we go, Oh, I know that story. And and I feel like one of my challenges as a homilist now is to be able to draw in different Fresh. elements of the story. Yeah. That you know, Have you ever looked at the story in this way? Have you thought about it in this way? Um, I love Ignatian meditation. I love, uh, particularly in the Gospels, what St. Ignatius talked about was, you know, read it, breathe, imagine it. You know, God gave us our imagination for a reason. It sure. was so that we could see the unseen. And I think many times when they, when especially students that I'm talking to say, well, I get so distracted in prayer, my imagination runs away. Yeah. I say, well, that means you're not using your imagination in prayer. That's really true. You're not, you're not controlling that. You're right. And I think, directing it. and scriptures are a great way of saying, so what's the day look like? What was the look on Jesus's face? What would it have been like to be the woman, you know, caught in adultery or 
you know, with the bleeding, who's crawling through the crowd trying to reach and touch the hem of the garment. Mm-hmm. You know, what would all those experiences be like? Because they're so, they're so tactile and they're so real. And even if you don't get it exactly right, you know, mm-hmm. there's different ways you can imagine it in, in different ways. Um, just allowing the Holy Spirit to move and let you see the story from different people's perspective and different eyes. That's, yeah. that's where I've personally found the richness, particularly of the Gospels, but of all the scriptures, that yeah. you can read the same thing over and over again, and God wants to say something new to you in a different way. Those are all really good answers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for my unmarked up Bible. You don't mark your Bible. I don't. I haven't marked this Bible. If, no, that's if you true. come back, would you bring a different Bible? I'll bring, my, I'll bring the Bible I had when I was a teenager. Okay. And in the meantime, I'll probably like just cover it with highlighters and, you know. Actually, we have had others that didn't write in their Bible okay. for various reasons. And were they mocked incessantly like I was, Not or did like you just you. save that for me? I saved it. You're a gift. I saved it. You're a gift I to the church. It. All right, we have questions. <laughs> We, uh, for those of you that are just joining us, we actually are <laughs> friends for a long time. and uh, I, Up until uh, this point, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a good run. So I will answer all these questions. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have good questions uh, this week on this period of the return. Uh, Julie asks, I am confused about the compilation of the book of Esther. Can Ooh. you explain it? Yes, First of all, what, what, what do you think she means by she has problems with the compilation? Uh, that the numbers and the chapters are very strange in the book of yeah. Esther. So uh, Esther, uh, half, about half of Esther is um, not part of what our Protestant brothers and sisters would include in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. They would be known, they would call them deuterocanonical. We see this also in Daniel or apocryphal. as well. Or apocryphal, exactly. False writings. So the... Um, so because our Protestant brothers and sisters were the first to actually give numbers and verses, I believe, and, and so because, the, because that was during the time of the Reformation, they weren't giving it to books of Scripture or parts of Scripture right. that they didn't feel were actually scriptural. So we, have, uh, we had some Hebrew texts of Esther, and then we had Greek texts of Esther. And one of, one of Luther's things was to say, if it's Greek... It's not. Yeah, Septuagint's it, gone. It's not gender. Yeah, the Septuagint was gone, those things. So Esther is this odd book, and again, Daniel is a similar way, where we have a mixture of Hebrew and Greek texts. Interestingly enough, in our lectionary, we read mostly from the Greek texts of mm-hmm. uh, the, the book of Esther. So because of that, it doesn't just go, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Uh, the numbering gets a little bit different. I'm trying to... Um, I'm trying to, I want to give an example of it. You can probably open it quicker because you Old have tabs. Testament. <laughs> Deacon. I, people if, know, I'm if, ju- if people know that I'm just liturgy, kidding. I'm just kidding they you. They do know that. They, they, of course, know that. There we go. Judith and Esther. So uh, we have chapters like F <laughs> or chapter E or 8 in parentheses. Um, you know, you'll have 5 and then 5D, right? So that's all part of as... Uh, as as it was originally um, uh, as it was originally done in the uh, the Vulgate version mm-hmm. that Saint Jerome put together, we had that was what we've used currently. But because the numbers are so different, and there was a desire to try to keep a similar numbering system with our Protestant brothers and sisters, it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, Kyle asks, are Hanukkah and Purim the same Ooh. thing? If not. How are they different? I guess we've got to... We didn't defi- even mention Purim. How do we not mention this up to this point? Well, now's your time. It is. It's yeah. our time. 
It's okay. What? Oh, that's a good thing. I'll say what Hanukkah is. You say what Purim is. Hanukkah is these, also called the Feast of Dedication in the New Testament, the yeah. Feast of Lights. And Hanukkah takes place when the the Maccabean revolt, uh, Judas Maccabeus leads this revolt against the, the Seleucids, uh, Antiochus Epimenes, they call him, but he's Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, which means I am God. Yeah, Antiochus Epimenes is madman, and that's what the Jews called him, Antiochus Epimenes, little inside joke there. And uh, when they fought against the Greeks and took back the temple, they rededicated the temple, but yeah. they didn't have enough oil. But lo and behold, a miracle took place, and they were the oil lasted, and they rededicated the temple. That's called Hanukkah. Right. And, and that's it, when you go and you see the, the little Hanukkah, the candles in the right. window. And and uh, and so in the New Testament, it doesn't say Hanukkah. It says Feast of Dedication or Feast of Lights. That's what that one is. Yeah. And Purim is the celebration of the uh, salvation of the Jewish people mm -hmm. uh, that was procured uh, through the intercession of Esther. And some of the early church fathers actually said that Purim was fulfilled in Easter, that just as... Hmm. Um, yeah, Athanasius wrote that, that uh, you know, this is the time when God saved his people from the, the enemy's plot that would bring about their destruction and did this through the beauty of a woman who interceded for her own people, which mm -hmm. we see in Mary's yes and the incarnate word being born and dying and rising for us. So yeah. um, it's something that I think you know, many times, at least as Catholics, we're aware of a Hanukkah we're aware of Passover, for example, but you know maybe not so much Purim. But they are different feasts, yeah. and uh, it is something that, in that sense, uh, when we celebrate the freedom of God's people, which is what Purim is about, uh, that really is what we do in the Easter season. Okay, Sam, what did repentance look like in the Old Testament? Was it just, uh, was it just about doing things like wearing a sackcloth or putting dirt on your head? As a Christian, I feel like repentance is primarily about feeling sorry, and we don't really do things to repent. Can you help me understand better? All right. Well, that's a good one. You know, when you that's talk about one. when you talk about first of all, I'll just say this, and then I'll hand it over to you. Repentance in the Old Testament, the Hebrew idea of repentance, shuv, uh, to re, to repent, to uh, to turn to turn around, I think in the Greek metanoia, you know, mm -hmm. this idea of, of, uh, of repentance. And to repent in the, in the Old Testament was to turn from that which you were doing. And there were outward demonstrations of this, an outward manifestation. One was uh, ashes, sure. uh, sackcloth, wearing sackcloth, showing outwardly what's happening on the inside, that I... I am repenting. I am turning, and you would, you would, you would do that. And of course, the prophets. One of the major messages about the prophets was to turn, turn from your ways, repent, turn from that which is killing you, and turn toward God. Right. Uh, I, I think part of the question is getting to this idea that when you read the Old Testament, there are these very huge outward signs, you know, the sackcloth, the ashes, yeah. the long periods of fasting, you know, that when people sinned, you know, they, they needed to do what we would consider in today's society very dramatic actions to come back to the Lord. Well, mm -hmm. the prophets often, you know, said, rend your hearts, not your garments. It was one of the critiques of Jesus that said, like, the outward show is not what's important. Um, 
it's what's going on inside that counts. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes in our own society today, we almost go the other extreme, which is we might say, and therefore, we need no outward show. I, I think of one of the most beautiful psalms about repentance ever written was Psalm 51. It was written by David, and it's that beautiful uh, scripture, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew in me a steadfast spirit. And that what he desires is a humble and contrite heart. Yeah. But he concludes it with by saying, and then you will accept the sacrifices. And so it's not that we shouldn't be doing some of these outward show type things. It's that it begins with an interior sense of repentance, which is a little deeper than perhaps a, a more contemporary I'm sorry. You know, it, it's more than a my bad. Yeah. It's a, it's a recognition that there are there are things in me that need to change, and I need God's grace to change them. One more question. We got a question from Anne. Anne, uh, whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Whatever happened to the? I know what you're going to say already. Well, I, I already said it. Da, 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 da. There you go, Anne. What did happen to the Ark of the Covenant? That is a good, a good question. I have an answer. Yeah, go ahead. It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm being serious about it. Like, yeah. I mean, certainly from an historical point of view, it'd be fascinating to know this. And I know there's... Especially there's my like wife, a, which is an archaeologist. There, there you go. And, and uh, isn't there an Ethiopian group that yes, says that they have it or they've made replicas and they've hid them around? They did. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but if, if we needed it, the Lord would give it to us. Mm-hmm. And what we have in the Eucharist is far greater than the Ark. And, and the Blessed... Yes, yeah, in our Blessed Mother, right? And so, you know, when we, uh, our churches, what, what's beautiful is the Lord took away the Ark, which was just in one place. And now we have tabernacles all over the world. Yeah. You know, that in, you know, in any Catholic church, you can be in the presence of God, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in in the Eucharist. And so uh, he kind of did a bit of a switcheroo, but he gave us a huge upgrade in that sense. Yeah, yeah, we we talked about that just a little bit earlier in the show and in that, uh, what happened to the ark? Well, uh, Jeremiah and his, uh, his buddies ended up taking the ark and putting it in a cave prior to the Babylonians coming in to destroy Jerusalem in 587 put it in a cave over by Mount Nebo, where Moses died. And we have no evidence that anybody has found it. We have no evidence of it being found. Uh, We don't know the exact place. We don't even know if it is, at this point, a thing, and whether it just deteriorated. But like you said, that doesn't matter other than interesting National Geographic type of show, because the real arc now, the when you, this is an important point. When you study the Old Testament and you come to the New Testament, you're looking for the fulfillment. Yes. Twelve tribes, twelve disciples. Moses went up on a mountain. Jesus goes up on the Sermon on the Mount and yeah. speaks. Paschal Lamb, Lamb of God. When you are dealing with the Ark, it's very obvious in Luke chapter one that Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. And then Revelation, John says, "I looked into heaven and I, and I saw the Ark." And then he describes Our Lady of Guadalupe to an absolute T. Yes. And so we know that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant because yes. in the Ark was the uh, the, the the manna and uh, Aaron's budding rod and... I said the manna earlier, so the Ten Commandments. 
You, that's right, you did. Yeah. I was just joking with you. Yeah, no. But you have these three things in the ark. These three things are yes. the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right. So we do have the ark. And in the church. You know, Mary yeah. is a model of the church. And so, um, you know, that the, the church herself, that's why we refer to the church as feminine, because of all the dimensions of the church, really the Marian dimension is the most profound. Yeah. And so we come to our mother and, you know, not just marry our mother, but our mother, the church. Yeah. And that's what we enter into. That's where we find the presence of God, and that's where we live out our faith. Yeah, it's good. Boy, I can't thank you enough for joining me. It's it's fun just to talk to you because we're old friends, but the insights that you bring to it and the practical application, I know that it's very helpful. Uh, it's very helpful to, to people. Where can people get in touch with you? So I have a weekly podcast called They That Hope. I do it with a good friend of mine, Father Dave Pavanka. Very good friend is, of mine, uh, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, president of Franciscan University. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a half-hour show. It's actually just our friendship. We, we jokingly refer to it as ESPN meets EWTN. We talk about sports, we talk about life, and we talk yeah. about the faith and how those all intersect. Uh, as you mentioned, I have a lot of music. If you just go on... Uh, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, just look up Bob Rice mm -hmm. and I'll be there. I have a website, deaconbobrice.com. That's probably the best place to check out okay. just to get a whole bunch and you're of speaking around the, the country. Speaking around the country, raising kids, teaching yeah. at Franciscan, feeling very blessed. I want to ask you to pray for us. Will you do I'd that? Be very happy give us to. A, give us all a, a, a closing blessing. Yeah, I'd be honored to. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your love for us. Uh, we thank you that you are faithful, even when everything in our life seems to be falling apart, Lord God, that in the shadow of death, you are at our side and we can have confidence and conviction in you. And that you call us, Lord, as the Good Shepherd to come home, to return, that you wanna restore us to something even greater than we were before. So uh, Lord, I just ask that you would bless all these listeners that are out there, particularly the one who is most hurting, that they would hear in this a message of hope and a message of love. You can come home. Uh, the Lord loves you and he wants you for his own and you will never be satisfied. He is life abundantly. And just continual blessing upon the show and upon Jeff and the wonderful ministry, Lord, that you have blessed him with uh, through opening up scripture, particularly for those who are Catholic. Uh, may the blessing of Almighty God be upon all of us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Thanks. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.